0: When I was a little girl in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, my family lived in this cute house with a beautiful old live oak tree in the backyard. And it had just that iconic southern look with the branches that went all the way down to the ground and Spanish moss hanging from the boughs. But our house, even though it looked great from the outside, was located in a floodplain with poor drainage And like many houses in the deep south, had no basement. And so during the eight years that my family lived there, the house flooded twice. Once when I was three, and then again four years later. And both times simply just because of heavy, unrelenting rain. One of my earliest memories, like, in life is from that first flood, I'm being held by someone standing at the back door of our house, and there is a group of men gathered. My dad is there with them, and they are praying, and they are also uh, strategizing together about how to move our furniture and the valuables in our house so that they wouldn't be damaged by water. And then I remember being carried out of the house down our really long driveway and whoever was carrying me was kind of trying to like shelter me from the rain a little bit and i just remember looking down as i was being held and seeing his boots just sloshing through the water that was in our driveway and the water was already basically up to his knees After the flood, there wasn't a lot of immediately visible damage that first time. You could drive by the house and just not even know what had happened, but inside was a mess. Although less than a foot of water got inside, the floors were warped, the baseboards were popping off, and my parents had to start doing the work of cutting out walls and floor to see how much damage had really been done. I don't know about you, but in a lot of ways, the last four months have felt like being stuck inside a flooding house. And every time we think that the rain is starting to lighten up, we just hear more thunder. Some of us are just itching and so ready to like survey the damage, figure out what needs to be done, and move on. But the rain hasn't even stopped between a global pandemic and all its devastating impacts and confronting racial injustice, and then add to that just the normal griefs of life in a broken world, aren't you just so ready for God to scoop you in his arms and carry you out of this flooding house? What do we even say to God in these moments of anguish and perplexity? Well, Psalm 22 and dozens of other prayers like it in the Bible would suggest that one of the best places to start is with the cry of lament and simply asking, Why? Whatever is in your flood right now, lament is exactly for moments like this. To lament, of course, is to express painful emotions to God, to come to him with honesty about our sadness, our anger, our confusion over situations of evil and brokenness and suffering like Carrie and Ben let us in so well. It's bringing our questions, even the ones that we feel might be disrespectful or the ones that reveal the depths of our doubts. And yet precisely because when we lament, We do so to God, even with the most raw and unfiltered language we can muster. There is hope, because underneath lament is the bold assumption that God cares about our pain and is the one, the only one, who can do something about it. And in that way, lament actually becomes the seed of true and active hope. So to help us see this in Psalm 22, I would encourage you to grab a Bible that you're willing to write in. And for those of you who are streaming, you can pause the video if you need to. I'm going to ask you to come back in a little bit and do some doodling in your Bible around Psalm 22 to help us see how this honest lament comes to us enfolded with trust and hope. So first, what I want you to do is draw a little bracket around verses 1 and 2. And out to the side, write this. Write, my present pain. And then next to verses 3 and 4, write this. Write, God's past faithfulness, or whatever uh, acronym helps you remember that. And then again, around verses 6 to 8. Write my present pain. And then again, around verses 9 to 10, write God's past faithfulness. And then around verses 11 to 21, which is a long section, write my present pain. And then finally, around verses 22 to 30, the end of the psalm, write God's good future. I'll give you a moment to finish that up. And so as you can see, Psalm 22 is a lament psalm, but it's not one that sits still. It is a roller coaster ride of emotions, emotions that are all given some breathing space and don't come in a clear, straight line. Many of you are familiar with our local mission partner, Treehouse, and their work to end hopelessness among teens. And one of the pictures that they use to visualize their work is this image of a tangled line. For them, this line represents what it looks like to move from hopelessness to hope. It is a tangled process, non-linear, and sometimes just like one step forward and then five steps back. But in that picture, two things are clear. First, when you pull back and see the big picture, the forward-moving direction is unmistakable. But alongside that is the reality that the journey is not quick or easy, especially when you're knotted up with your own lament and pain. What makes Psalm 22 such a beautiful resource for us is that it shows us both of these things. We get the up-close, unvarnished, graphic descriptions of pain, and we get the zoomed-out big picture, which unmistakably tells us that hope gets the final word. Even with present pain, God's good future is on the horizon. Without that hope, lament might crush us. But without honest lament, hope would be shallow, based on a false reality, ignoring the true toll of evil and suffering in the world. And as any good therapist will tell you, and I have the experience, there is no healing apart from feeling it. And so if the house is flooding and we're not getting out anytime soon, How does lament, and in particular Psalm 22, help us in that place? Well, first and quite simply, lament helps us name the reality of suffering and brokenness and evil. By giving us language to describe our suffering before God, we are actually forced to look at what is causing us pain. Bishop Christophe Munzihirwa was a Congolese Catholic bishop in the 1990s who served in Congo during a time of just immense suffering after the Rwandan genocide and the ensuing violence that spilled into his country. And he said this. I love it. He said, There are things which can only be seen by eyes that have cried. There are things which can only be seen by eyes that have cried. In other words, lament helps us see the world rightly. And our view of reality then is in some sense skewed until we can truly name before God that all is not well. I quote a church leader from the global south here intentionally because I believe that for the American church, lament is an incredibly countercultural choice. We are really good at either immediately wanting to fix the problems when we see them or just numbing out and insulating ourselves from any type of discomfort. But both of these responses, unchallenged by lament, can lead us to a falsely optimistic view of the world that leaves very little room in our own imaginations for confronting suffering, both our own and that of our neighbors, and the world. But instead... Lament invites us to be a bit more truthful about the suffering around us and in us. It permits us to admit that the brokenness is far beyond our powers of solving it. And it's waiting for us when the numbing techniques wear off, as they always do. Instead of saying, it's fine, Psalm 22 gives us permission to say, this hurts so much it feels like I'm going to die. And instead of spiritually glossing over something with, well, we know God has a plan, Psalm 22 begs, God, do you even have a plan right now? In the logic of lament, this is not overly dramatic whining, and it doesn't make God mad. Instead, it's actually a truthful way of communicating with God and seeing the world. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, the very last thing Jesus says before he dies is Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dale Bruner calls these words of Jesus the gospel at its deepest. You see, there are all kinds of other things Jesus could have said, like, we won, or hallelujah. But the last thing he says before his death isn't a victory shout. It's an anguished question. If we go back to that tangled line, when Jesus utters that cry of lament, we can imagine it's as if he leaps right into the center of the most knotted, gnarly, hopeless, messy place of this whole thing, And the fact that Jesus does that, joining his lament to our own, that is the beginning of true hope. On the cross, Jesus identifies himself with our suffering and stands in solidarity with sinners at our lowest point of estrangement from God. Jesus makes our wise his own He takes on our questions, our agony of not understanding. He takes on the impact of sin and suffering to its fullest. But of course, this is the gospel's paradox of joy. Because Jesus takes on the worst of our sin and suffering to the point of uttering that agonizing cry in Psalm 22, we are therefore able to lament in the full confidence that there is no suffering we could ever experience where God's presence does not also go with us. Christ's lament of forsakenness in the hour of his greatest agony means that in the hours of our agony, we are never forsaken. In Jesus, God locates himself with us in our suffering. And what that means is that our suffering is therefore relocated inside the story that God is writing. One where the line of lament may not straighten out right away, but the big picture is certain. Although Jesus only quotes the first part of Psalm 22, we know that the gospel writers want us to imagine his entire life through the prism of Psalm 22, both in his suffering and the subhuman treatment of crucifixion and the victory of God's good future. I want to remind you of Psalm 22's ending. It's a sweeping vision that I want you to hear. It goes, All the families of the nations shall worship before him and future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. Friends, that is us. That is the story of our lament becoming a part of the story that God has already determined where the ending is sure. And because Jesus locates himself with us in our lament, our laments are relocated inside the story that he is writing. It's a tangled line that begins to unfold into hope. And in the big picture of Psalm 22, the the really big picture, the one that includes Jesus and me and you and all the families of the earth. In that story, lament actually becomes the seed of creative and hopeful action. One of the best resources that I have found for stimulating my own thinking during this pandemic season has come out of a group called Praxis, which is a Christian business and nonprofit accelerator that exists to cultivate what Praxis calls redemptive entrepreneurship. And I just love that. And so they are working with entrepreneurs and leaders who are trying to creatively address problems in their community and find solutions in ways that benefit the common good. And recently on a podcast, some Praxis leaders were talking about how they see the practice of lament as an essential first step for entrepreneurs to creatively respond to brokenness in meaningful ways through their work. They described how in lament, we get up close to pain and Problems that we're trying to understand. And then we carry it before God. And in that movement of truthfulness and honesty, our own imaginations open up to God's vision and direction rather than simply just applying our own human derived solutions. And as I was listening to this podcast, I was fascinated because in praxis, Christian entrepreneurs are learning about lament, not just for personal spiritual connection with God, but as a necessary first step for their own businesses, for even creating possibilities of hope within their work. Effectively, these American entrepreneurs are learning the same thing that Bishop Munzi Hirwa taught. There are things that can only be seen by eyes that have cried. So whether we are journeying through suffering ourselves or beholding it in the world around us, faithful and truthful lament is often necessary in order to even see the next right step. So what is this? look like? What does it look like for a lament to lead to a next step of creative and redemptive action? And again, unsurprisingly, the missions pastor, I am drawn to the witness of the global church, this time in Liberia, in the story of the women in white. In early 2003, Liberia had been mired in civil war for 14 years, and thousands of Liberians were internally displaced. Children were being recruited as soldiers. Violence against women had skyrocketed. And that year, one woman named Lema Gabowi and a small group of her friends visited women in refugee camps, and they listened to their stories of pain and loss, and they sat with them in lament, and they put their hearts in a position to be moved By their pain. And from there, Gaboe determined that the Christian women of Liberia could no longer be silent and would campaign for peace. And from there, they gathered women together to pray and peacefully protest every day in front of President Charles Taylor's motorcade, saying they would not stop until peace was reached. And they became known as the women in white because when they protested, as you can see, they wore all white and they refused to put on anything celebratory like colorful clothes or jewelry or fix their hair. In the end, thousands of women joined the movement and they wielded so much influence that they played a crucial role in bringing about a peace agreement and an end to the war that year. Their first steps of lament gave birth to meaningful hope and action. There are nearer examples as well. Many of you are familiar with Brian Stevenson, who spoke here a couple years ago. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative based in Montgomery, Alabama. In 2018, EJI opened up the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which stands to memorialize the legacy of the suffering of African-Americans in this country. In one section, which you can see here, there are over 800, 800 monuments, one for each county in the United States where a racial terror lynching took place with the names of victims engraved on the columns. This memorial is a form of public lament for the past that is meant to provoke visitors in the present towards creative action into the future. EJI says this site is meant to help people reflect on America's history of racial inequity while also being, and I quote, designed to promote a more hopeful commitment to racial equality and the just treatment of all people. So with this monument, EJI is actually attempting to leverage the gift of lament for creative and meaningful action in the direction of a better future. That future You'll remember, according to Psalm 22, is one where God heals the afflictions of the afflicted and where the poor shall eat and be satisfied. It's a future where God's will use, God will use his own people to do the work of redemption and of proclamation of his deliverance. It is a future that Jesus' own lament opens up for us. And it makes me want to ask... The question of us, CPC. What could be born of our lament in this season, this season of COVID 19 and renewed calls for racial justice? What will be born from us in this season that will enable future generations and a people yet unborn to praise the living God? How is God inviting us into the raw grief of lament so that we may live even more firmly into the hope that we have in Jesus? Even as I tell you these stories, I'm aware that many of us are still living in houses where the water is coming in and the rain hasn't stopped. We're wondering can anything hopeful be born of the lament that I am facing? And if that's where you are, let the prayer of Psalm 22 with its deep pain and big picture vision of hope be an anchor for you in the storm. Allow lament to give you an honest and even unspiritual words to use to God. And remember that Jesus has gone before you in it. His own lament is for you. It means that even in your darkest hour you are not abandoned. He is with you. And even though you're in the middle of the messiest of knots, your story is part of a bigger picture, and lament is not the last word.